Welcome to Caffeinated Thoughts Radio, a stimulating look at culture, current events, faith, and politics from a Christian and conservative point of view. We don't just talk on the radio, we blog too. Check us out at caffeinatedthoughts.com. Now grab a cup of coffee and join us. This is Caffeinated Thoughts Radio. And welcome to Caffeinated Thoughts Radio. Caffeinated Thoughts Radio is brought to you in part by Northside Cafe in Winterset. Just a short drive from Des Moines. Go check out Winterset's oldest cafe located right on the Courthouse Square. Mention Caffeinated Thoughts and you'll get a free crisp for dessert. Hey, this is Shane Vanderhart and so you got Brian Myers and... Brian, you brought somebody with you. Yeah, I brought my grandson, Gabriel. He's been on the show before. Yes, he has. So he's, he's in here running the clock for us today. And we appreciate it. Uh, well, he doesn't have a mic. I'd say, hey, welcome. Here. <laughs> so here. he let you here. talk into it. You could talk. You could snag your grandpa's. Now, yeah, yeah. Say hello. Now, hello. Welcome back. Of course. Uh, thank you. We got, <laughs> we've got Ron producing. Yes, we're, indeed. We're totally professional. Absolutely. Yes. So... And you're, Brian, you're gonna you're not only here today, but you're gonna be with us next week. That's it's right. Like, That's I, right. How are we so blessed? Well, look, look at it this way. I'm here for the next two shows, so this is the insane co-host bonus edition. Awesome, awesome. So <laughs> we've missed that. <laughs> Things yeah. are just kind of boring without you. I mean, well, we're, we're so serious. I got to get checked out of the asylum on Friday mornings to come. You know? Yeah, yeah. Appreciate that. So. Yeah. All right. Hey, uh, we have a special guest online uh, joining us this morning, uh, Gina Delfonso. She's the editor of Breakpoint.org. Uh, she wrote a new book. She has a new book out called One by One, Welcoming the Singles in Your Church, published by Baker Books. So be sure to check that out. Welcome to Caffeinated Thoughts Radio, Gina. Thanks so much for having me. So what prompted you, what prompted you to write this book? Well, first of all, it was my own experience as a single person in the church. Um, I actually started working on this book about seven or eight years ago, uh, based on largely on my own experiences and also on the experiences of a lot of my friends and people I knew in the church and a lot of the things that we were going through and, and messages that we were hearing. So uh, I worked on it. I've, I've worked on it all this time. It's only now just come out. But I sort of had a feeling all along that it would still be relevant when it came out, uh-huh. and, and uh, it is proving to be. Yeah. So you, you know, you said that singles when they, I read through your book last week. Singles when they come to church, they just there's they they receive some mixed messages, don't they? Yes, I would say so. Um, on the one hand, the church is giving some very positive messages to everybody, which is that we're all made in God's image, and we're all loved by God, and uh, Christ's redemption is available to all of us. But in the practical day-to-day, we sometimes, the Church sometimes unconsciously sets up a hierarchy and makes it feel as if people with families, spouses and children, are maybe just a little more worthy than everybody else. And it, it's been unintentional, but mm-hmm. the, the family-centered focus is so heavy, it's become so heavy over the years, that we don't realize sometimes the single people and the childless people are getting pushed to the margins. Right. And I, you know, I was reflecting back. I, I was married at age 21, um, and, and I, have to, you know, I, I have to think back. It's like, have I ever said anything stupid? 
to, to, to a single. I, I you, don't, you don't want me to well, answer that question. I'm do sure you? there are plenty of things stupid, but uh, whether I whether it was directed to a single person or not, I don't know. Um, uh, you know, I hope not. But uh, but there's some things that you know. I think I think that people. Yeah, you're. Uh, we just we we're just so, it's so ingrained, and I think we also forget what. Um, and you brought up in your book what the Apostle Paul taught about single uh, singleness mm-hmm. that you know it, that that there's benefit to that as well. Um, not that you know necessarily somebody in the midst of who's single necessarily wants to hear that or uh, wants to say you know you mentioned too. You, I'm trying not to say something stupid. Uh, <laughs> basically, that that you know it has it has is it its advantages just like. There's advantages to being married and uh, you know and being a parent as well, right? Mm-hmm. Yes, uh, you you brought up uh, what Paul writes about singleness, and you know all of us are tempted to sort of gloss over certain passages in the Bible because you know we're human and right. we're sinful, and that's just what we do. <laughs> all of us can find something to make us uncomfortable, but a lot of times now the church is a little bit uncomfortable with Paul saying that that uh, he actually prefers the state of singleness, and of course. That, that message had a very specific context and a purpose, and right. and mm-hmm. that's all true. But still, let's engage with it. Let's look at it, see why he said that, see how that might apply to us today, and, and how we can use that to recognize that uh, God has a plan and a purpose for single people, too, and it's not all just about getting married and having a family, even though that's also a good thing. Right. So, and you, uh, uh, you, you took some, some swings... I think rightfully so at at the uh, courtship culture that Uh-oh. that was um, <laughs> I, 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 in particular Joshua Harris's "I Kiss Dating Goodbye" book and um, and and you know I, I've read through that book as as a youth pastor and then as a parent of teenagers and and you know I, I noticed there's some there were some good things uh, it, it had but also uh, you know it, it it did come with some unintended consequences right. Mm-hmm. Well, yes, it did take some courage to write that part, <laughs> but but I have to say, I have to point out that Josh Harris himself is now looking back and saying, "Whoa, I think I went too far." That's and, what I, mean, I thought. Full, full that was my recollection. For that. Yeah. It, it it takes a lot of guts to do that. I I, I respect him for that. Um, he was very young. <laughs> he yeah. he had some very utopian ideals. Uh, Sometimes we in the church tend to fall for utopian ideals because they sound so great and so biblical, uh, and, so, yeah. and so holy and so wonderful. Right. Uh, but uh, what he unintentionally end up ended up doing was loading people down with a lot of expectations and rules and regulations and standards that were just really really hard to le- live up to. Right. And people started a, a lot of people started not having relationships at all because. I mean, you were sort of supposed to know going into a relationship, well, this is the person for me, and I'm going right. to be faithful to them forever. Well, how can you know that going into a relationship? That's true. But that was sort of what came out of that. Well, yeah, I mean, the ideal is obviously you spend time in groups, and then you mm-hmm. become friends, and then, the, you know, it, it progress. But there was so, yeah, there's so much pressure that yeah. gets that gets put on people in that situation. It's like, yeah, um, well, you know, maybe I can't see you, but, uh, unless unless you know this is going to, you know, possibly lead towards marriage. And it's like, wow, <laughs> can we can't yeah. we just be friends first, and you know, and just see how this develops? And um, yeah, well, I think in the in the matter of courtship, 
Courtship, the, the entire movement, in my estimation, was, was a reaction to the polar opposite, which, which was, frankly, some, some very bad behavior uh, in, within the evangelical church right. relative right. to this issue. Um, so the pendulum swung back maybe a bit too far. Right, um, exactly. But, but, but there really were some issues there that the church needed to address. Um, I'll let you speak to that, Gina. But yes, you're you're absolutely right. Uh, there there were some issues, and I think at, just as you say, we did let the pendulum swing too far because it. I think it seemed to a lot of people like, well, if if the kids are behaving badly, let's let's use this system and let's make them as holy as possible. Right. But uh, it was so so much of it was not. It, it tried to go beyond the Bible, and you know, when Christians do that, a lot of times we end up messing up, because, <laughs> right. I mean, God's Word is God's Word. God knows better than we do. God has our our strengths and our weaknesses and our limitations in mind. He gives us uh, what we can live with. He, he, he helps us uh, to live holy lives through His Spirit. It's not just about rules, regulations. Right. You, you mustn't go out with a guy unless your father and two elders in the church have signed off on it or whatever. Right. God didn't tell us that. I mean, a lot of a lot of what we see in the Bible about courtship is culturally based. I mean, obviously certain standards like mm-hmm. um, like no premarital sex and so forth, those are timeless standards that God has given us. But so much of, of the other things we see are, are co- cultural. Right. And when we try to say our cultural must our culture has to be a lot like the Old Testament culture, um, we end up binding ourselves to something that God mm-hmm. himself is not binding us to, and it, it makes it really difficult. Just just as Jesus said uh, in the New Testament when he was talking about man-made rules, you know, we pile them on ourselves, we pile them on other people, and then things break down because that, that's not what God gave us to do, that's what human beings thought would make us perfect. You're listening to Caffeinate Thoughts Radio, and on the line we have Gina Delfonso, who's the author of One by One, Welcoming Singles in Your Church. Uh, Gina, the, the whole courtship model, when I first read Joshua Harris's book, and, and I read the Luddies book as well that you also discuss, and mm-hmm. and I think those are the only two books I've read in, in the courtship arena, but one thing that struck me too, courtship worked really well in ancient times because, well, they arranged marriages. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> and and uh, and a lot of what you know what they're discussing is like this is great if your parents are actually picking out your spouse for you, but that's not the case anymore, uh, right. thankfully. Um, right. So anyway, that was just a, th- a random thought that I had. Yeah, as a, I was, a lot of things have changed. I mean, they were way more into teenage marriages than we well, That's true. Too. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. Definitely. So yeah. I, so a lot of these things that we try to apply um, that worked in ancient culture. You know, as far as courtship doesn't quite fit, you know, in our twenty in the twenty first century. Um, but uh, you know, for instance, another uh, uh, and you mentioned um, Townsend and Cloud, and they had that boundaries in date uh, in dating book that I thought, you know, that's probably a lot uh, is probably more of a I think a better help for for singles. I would think. Yeah, um, I think so too. And that's something we you know we talked with my teenagers about as well. Um, but anyway, we've got about five minutes left, and I want I want to end on a, you know kind of close this out on a positive note here. 
how can the how can the church change? What can we do to better minister to singles? Well, I give a lot of uh, practical ideas in the book. I don't have time to go through them all now. Sure. But the biggest thing I'm interested in, the, the biggest takeaway I hope people will, will get from the book, is a shift in how the church views single people. Uh, we are not some sort of problem children <laughs> to, right. to, be, to be dealt with as if we've done something wrong. Oh, put them over there in the singles group, they'll be happy there, and uh, they don't really have to mix with the rest of the church. That, that causes all kinds of problems. Um, and, and we're not... We're not projects who need to be fixed, you know. That, that, uh, we'll just match them all up with, with somebody, and then everything will be fine, and they'll be living the lives they're supposed to live. Uh, we're, we're just, we, we need the Church to see us as we are, to meet us where we are, not, not to talk about singleness as a prolonged, or, or not to talk about prolonged singleness as some sort of a sin, as some pastors have done, but to just recognize it as a, a stage of life that God has us in, for, for his own reasons, and realizing that to bring us fully into the life of the Church, to let us take leadership positions, to involve us in social activities, to uh, not just see us as some sort of spare parts who were left over when everybody else paired up, but to um, treat us just as you would treat everybody else. And... Um, how widespread so that, a, a problem do you think that is, Gene? I mean, is it the kind of thing in, it, where you think this is common in evangelical churches that the that uh, the the singles are sort of grouped up but not really integrated into the church in any other way? Is that is is that a prevalent problem in your estimation? Mm-hmm. I've seen it happen a lot. Uh, a lot okay. of people, while I who I talked to while I was writing the book, uh, and some of their quotes are in the book. They talk about having this happen to them. And people I've talked to uh, since the book was published have, have been telling me the same thing. So uh, get out and talk to some of the single people in, in your churches, and, and you'll start hearing things along these lines. You know, I, I was told I have to go to the singles group, and I'm not welcome in other groups. Some, some people uh, have even told me I was it was suggested that I should go to another church where there are more singles. Oh, wow. Um, wow. <laughs> yeah, leave, leave our church. That Wow. Which, you That's know, helpful. is not what we're supposed to base our church going on. You know? Right. It's not about, it's not supposed to be about demographics and finding your own personal niche. That's consumerist. Mm-hmm. You're supposed to go to the church where you feel, um, where you believe God is calling you and where you think you can serve Him best. And so all demographics can do that together, and we need to concentrate on that more and learn how to do that so we can fully be the body of Christ. I find that stunning. <laughs> I go to a very small church, and I find it stunning that anybody would, as it were, turn away a group of, of people and say, say, go find another church yeah. where there's more people like you. Right. Well, I find you, that... you know, I don't think people do it cruelly or unkindly. I think they're trying to do it with with a single person's best interest in mind, but they're not seeing the big picture. They're not wow. seeing, this person is just another Christian like me, and some someone who is seeking to be here and worship God and serve God, and, you know, anybody who wants to do that is welcome here. That That's the big picture that, that we need to be seeing. Right, right. Well, I'm even thinking with singles ministries, too. Sometimes they try to do one one size fits all, too. Mm-hmm. It's like, hey, we're going to, you know, stick the, uh, the 40 and 50 
year-old singles in with with uh, you know college and career age. Oh you know? yes, and that, that, <laughs> like that doesn't quite work either. Exactly. <laughs> so, um, a- any other advice? We got about uh, got less than a minute. Uh, so I guess uh, one last thing you want to make sure you are here, our listeners here, as well as where can we uh, find your book? Sure. Well, the book is on sale um, on. Amazon and I believe through Lifeway and pretty much you know anywhere you would you would buy a, a Christian book and um, I, I guess the last thing I would say is just uh, change needs to happen on two levels institutional and personal so institutional that can take some time you know changing things in the structure of the church but on the personal level just learn to see and recognize and talk to the single people around you in church just like you would to anybody else, and that's where it has to start. Gina, thank you so much. This is Caffeine Thoughts Radio. We'll be back in a moment. Thanks, Gina. Hi, this is Brian Myers of Myers & Associates. If you're involved in maintenance at a manufacturing plant, you know how costly it can be when a machine goes down. And if the reason that machine went down is because the electronic controls on it failed, It can really be problematic if those electronics are obsolete. Well, not to worry. We represent Providence Industrial Electronics Repair, and they can get your machine up and running in no time. They repair boards, drives, servo motors, light curtains, you name it. So if you need industrial electronics repaired at your plant, or if you have other industrial maintenance needs, give me a call at 515-490-2640. That's Myers and Associates, 515-490-2640. Myers and Associates, keeping your operations running. And we started this a long time ago. And welcome back to Caffeinated Thoughts Radio. Caffeinated Thoughts Radio is only possible through the generosity of our sponsors. Be sure to check out Travis Rizvold, a modern woodman of America. Call Travis at 515-883-0029, and he can help you find the life insurance you need. And also, Caffeinated Thoughts is also sponsored by Crosswalk Ministries with Scott Owen, who offers biblical counseling and conciliation. Contact him at 515-635-5400. Six five or crosswalkcounseling.org. Hey, this is Shane Vanhart. We've got Brian Myers in studio. Ron making the magic happen. When he's not, hang- more chaos when he's not ha- hanging well, up when he's on not guests. hanging up on guests. <laughs> so, and and we have a, a, a special guest on the line, a friend of mine, Joy Pullman. Uh, she's managing editor of the Federalist. Uh, she's also education research fellow at the Heartland Institute in Chicago. Uh, but you work out of uh, Fort Wayne, right? That's right. All right. And you are also author of a new book, uh, Education Invasion, How Common Core Fights Parents for Control of American Kids. Welcome to Caffeinated Thoughts Radio, Joy. Oh, thanks for having me, Shane, and company. Hey, very welcome. <laughs> very welcome. So um, just for the sake of our reader, or readers, our listeners, who uh, may not be aware of what Common Core is, even though I, I, we've talked about it a number of times on the show. Just kind of, could you give us a kind of a 30,000-foot uh, view or synopsis of what Common Core is? Sure. Common Core is a 
Common Core was sold um, to the public in the early 2010s as basically being um, the next silver bullet <laughs> in education. Mm-hmm. Um, it's very simply a, a system of curriculum mandates and tests to measure whether kids have learned what the folks who wrote the curriculum mandates think you know, every child needs to know. And it was uh, essentially forced on the states using stimulus money that Republicans gave President Obama in 2009 um, so during the recession, President Obama told states, you know, if you want to get some ex- a, sh- a shot at some extra money for education, you have to do a number of things, and that included um, uh, getting better points, getting a higher score on um, their, you know, criteria for applying for the grant. If they adopted Common Core, they adopted its test, um, and they switched around their education systems accordingly. So it's, I call it a kind of the one ring to roll them all. It's basically a comprehensive attempt to tie um, the largest, most important things of education all together into one comprehensive um, package. And mm-hmm. uh, some of that happened effectively, and some of that did not. Uh, re, you know, start, starting to read through your book, and, and, and uh, you, do, you do an excellent job um, of giving, you know, talking about the history and the timeline of how Common Core came to be, and and I, you know, I, you know, I've I've actually written a chapter in a book on on this very topic. But I even learned a few things from your from your from your book as far as I didn't realize the Gates Foundation, for instance, um, funded states to hire consultants to write their grants for the race to the top. Oh, it's it's all. Oh, I mean, the great the Gates Foundation was all over this in ways that are really not well known. Yeah, even for folks who are really familiar with the Common Core topic. Um, so, of course, Bill Gates is the richest man in the world. His philanthropy is the largest in the world. It has assets worth, you know, something like the an, you know the annual budgets of a number of smaller nations. It's huge, you know, trillions of dollars um, that Mr. and Mrs. Gates have to spend, and they spent some of that treasure in the, pa- uh, in the past couple of years on getting the nation to adopt Common Core, which they saw as, you know, a central solution to real education pro- problems that plague um, American education. So uh, I am a capitalist, <laughs> or mm-hmm. you know, I, I'm actually you know I, I have some uh, some concerns about free markets, but I generally support them. So I don't have a problem with Mr. Gates earning his money, you know, freely in exchange for people you know giving it up willingly for products that he offers that people think make their lives better. But the problem is you know that that system of free exchange is something that he and his wife abandoned in forcing their education vision on the nation using um, the levers of government. And um, so rather than, you know, uh, having people freely decide whether, um, you know, the education program that his um, bought and paid for experts, you know, thought was good for kids, whether, you know, people could openly look at that and decide for themselves and freely choose whether they wanted that to be something that their kids got, um, Mr. and Mrs. Gates decided to use the coercive power of government to force everyone into their untested, um, you know, uh, set of theories. Um, And I really think that's unfair and it's dangerous to our project of American self-government. Well, you also did something uh, that, I, you know, I've noticed a, a lot of, you know, folks who oppose Common Core, myself included, is that you actually had the opportunity to go see how this is being implemented firsthand in, in the classroom. Um, could, could you speak to that as far as what, what impacts are, you know, are the Common Core math standards making in the classroom, uh, and how is this impacting also you know, our, our English classes, as well as even maybe some of our other our social studies and our science classes with the literacy standards. 
Right. Well, so I was really lucky because um, I was I was able to receive a fellowship to do some of the work um, that went into this book. And so um, the the Novak um, is a the Robert Novak Journalism Fellowship is a prize that they give out annually um, from the uh, Foundation for American Studies. And so that helped me be able to travel around the country to visit um, schools that were either doing or not doing Common Core and kind of get, as you say, just see what it looks like, you know, for kids and for teachers because. We talk all the time about, I think, these abstract things, but of course it really matters to what happen- is happening to human lives. Right. You know, these are the people that have to face these policies and live with them. Anyway, um, so one of the curious things that w- uh, w- was curious to me anyway is that it was really, really difficult to even just get into a Common Core using school district in the first place. I mean, we're, I mean, these are public schools, so I'm you know paying for the kids to go to them and for the teacher salaries and for the whole system that exists. And not only that, you know, as you know, as a, as media, I have an extra kind of layer, you know, of reason to you know go on on behalf of the public and just say, look, what are your tax dollars doing with your kids? Right. And I had to contact something between eight and nine um, different schools and school districts to find one that would let me come see them. And so, you know, when I did, you know, the book kind of tells the story of a, a school district that I visited outside of Indianapolis, um, and you know, I found, it, but what. In person, really seeing it, really, I mean, it was true what everyone has been saying, you know, about uh, what Common Court does to kids on the ground. So, for example, what I found were kids, small kids in the first grade classroom, they were using ways to count um, that basically caused them to have errors in their counting because they were using little pieces of foam, and then they had to, you know, put all these foam in different piles of groups and Mm -hmm. then write down all the groups, you know, on pieces of paper and then add them up. And just the, the, the fact that they had so many manipulatives on their tree in front of them was calling them, you know, causing them to make some really basic addition errors. Um, where, you know, it, the, and of course, this is one of the things that um, critics of Common Core complain about, the fact that Common Core kind of does dog whistles for what we call fuzzy math, mm-hmm. not teaching kids the most effective, efficient, accurate um, way to compute addition, subtraction, multiplication, and division, those core functions, Right away. So, of course, Common Core teaches that, but it delays that to about fifth grade, fourth, fifth grade. Yeah. And so the little kids are learning the least effective, the most complicated strategies. First, it's basically, you know, the cart before the horse. Right. So, 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 so for our listeners' benefit, they're basically, they don't learn really to do the stacking method until fourth grade? Yes. I mean, and that, I mean, so, the, you know, when you hear parents complaining about my kid has to do dots, my kid has to do hash marks and draw pictures and tell stories in math class. There, I mean, that's really something that Common Core directly tells teachers kids should be doing, mm-hmm. and it really, again, it gets things backwards. Kids should start out, they need very concrete and explicit and clear instruction. They need to get really comfortable with getting the right answer over and over again, and then you use their fluency and those math facts to build on it and get to the more complicated aspects of math. I've got uh, I don't know, two or three grandchildren that are fighting through this right now as we speak, and it's, uh, it's been a real frustration for their mother. Mm-hmm. So, uh, ba- basically, I mean, one of the, the arguments made for Common Core is that it helps, it's going to help our students be, you know, competitive, you know, for the global marketplace. And, and uh, we they want to help increase uh, um, our competitiveness amongst, you know, internationally. Now, countries that are doing well internationally, when do they start teaching their kids to stack? <laughs> uh, <laughs> well, I mean, of course, the, the most um, 
the highest achieving nations are Asian nations uh, in math particularly. And they, I mean, my son is using Singapore math as a, as a first grader. I mean, he just finished first grade, and they teach that right away in the first year. You know, he's already begun that. And so do, you know, effective, um, you know, drill methods. I mean, I use actually drill for me as a positive because all the neuroscience actually says that kids getting comfortable with automatically, it's called automaticity. You know, if you want your child to be able to do advanced math later on in life, you want him to have his math facts automatic. Right. Anyway, so those sorts of programs such as Kumon, which are really popular, really good, not only at helping kids remediate, but also helping math, uh, intelligent, math-skilled kids leap ahead, those also do that right away starting in kindergarten, first grade. You're listening to Caffeinated Thoughts Radio, and on the line we have Joy Pullman, the author of Education Invasion, How Common Core Fights Parents for Control of American Kids. Uh, Joy, what kind of impacts are the ELA standards making in the classroom? I well, I, I mean, if you, I think it's a, a really good way to kind of look at this is to look at the nation's leader in in, um, in English requirements. That would be the state of Massachusetts. It was well known for before Common Core having the very best literary requirements for school children in the nation, and those uh, visibly and dramatically improved the quality of instruction. Kids were get such that they were closing, uh, you know, achievement gaps. Not only were, you know, the, the disadvantaged kids doing much better than disadvantaged kids in the nation at large, so were their advanced kids, you know. So when you give kids a good intellectual diet of classic, you know, rigorous um, core literature, you know, that any educated person should know, it is not, it's good for everyone no matter what level that they're at. And so when the state um, instead, in, in, in exchange for, I think, $250 million of that stimulus money from the Obama administration, they got rid of their, their world-class uh, literature standards and they went to Common Core. And, you know, the, the teachers have um, been, you know, reducing the amount of the, um, the quality of the classic literature that they're giving to students um, and replacing it with, as Common Core requires, more nonfiction, um, more, <laughs> I mean, uh, I'm uh, you know, just uh, things that aren't um, as complex, uh, both thematically and just in the language that kids experience when they read classic literature. And so long story short, you know, the result has been that while Massachusetts has led the nation for, I want to say, about a decade, you know, and not mm-hmm. only gains, but just being at the top of the list, that its progress has stalled and it has even begun in some, um, you know, in some of the various tests to slide in, in its achievement. So it's, I mean, so it's that's a pretty visible um, aspect. And if you go into the classrooms, you know, I've talked with a number of teachers who, you know, one was an award-winning teacher um, in Arkansas. She, you know, was on a number of councils. She was awarded uh, for a variety of things. Her kids were getting great test scores. You know, she was giving her kids, you know, um, King Arthur poetry, you know, just wonderful teacher that you would love to have your child learning. But because um, what she was doing was not enough nonfiction, um, you know, the school consultant came in and told her, you need to be having more, you know, social science, you need to have more articles from newspapers, you need to have um, kind of pop material such as Malcolm Gladwell sort of books. And she had to get rid of her Arthurian legend, you know, poetry unit that kids love and so forth. And she ultimately, this really great teacher, decided to quit teaching because she didn't want the hassle of having people who didn't know how to teach come in and tell her to get rid of her best work. Joy, you mentioned Bill Gates earlier. Um it was my impression from some of the things, <clears throat> excuse me, that I had read uh, some time ago about Gates's involvement in Common Core that uh, he was obviously interested in in technology and, and thought that the future 
you know, was all about technology. And for that reason, uh, Common Core tends to have a, a very heavy technology emphasis and, uh, and may well have affected ELA to the extent that, that literature has a, has a much uh, a lower priority. Is that, uh, is that a fair assessment? That, I mean, that is true. So Common Core did blend in a lot of, you know, what the, how do you say, technological requirements. So, for example, it got rid of cursive and put in keyboarding, you know, so kids have to learn to type, but they don't necessarily have to learn to write in cursive. Um, and so it sounds appealing to you know, people who tend to be modernist or say, let's get with the times, you know, nobody's going to write in cursive anymore. But actually what it does is it doesn't comport with the neurological research that, um, you know, we're uncovering about how the human mind works, how children learn. We, I mean, people who study children's brain science have, for example, you know, discovered that cursive really unlocks um, abilities for kids to learn uh, in a variety of ways. It really helps um, their mental development in ways that just pushing a button on a keyboard doesn't. So that has, I mean, and we also have studies show that technology advances the advanced kids and that sets back the disadvantaged kids, so that increases the gaps for the neediest kids. Hey, be sure to check out, we're out of time, Joy, be sure to check out Joy's book, Education Invasion. Joy, thank you, thank you so much. Hi, this is Brian Myers. When I needed a better life insurance plan, I found it with Travis Rizvold of Modern Woodman of America. When I first met Travis, he wasn't like some other life insurance agents that can be pushy and try to get you to buy something. Travis just made himself available to me. That was it. He told me to let him know if and when I needed anything, and he stayed in touch. When the day came and I did need to make some changes with my life insurance, Travis met with me and walked me through several options so I could make an informed decision. Ultimately, it was the best decision for my situation. So if you need a better or the best life insurance plan for you... Call my friend Travis Rizvold with Modern Woodman. His number is 515-883-0029. Travis Rizvold with Modern Woodman. He can help you find the life insurance you need. Call him at 515-883-0029. Every human being has God-given dignity. That's what we believe at American Principles Project. We work in all 50 states and in Washington, D.C. to promote life, religious freedom, local control over education, economic progress for working Americans, and a return to the constitutional principles that make America great. Want to help us out? Visit our website today and sign up for email updates, AmericanPrinciplesProject.org. That's AmericanPrinciplesProject.org. Welcome to Caffeinated Thoughts Radio, a stimulating look at culture, current events, faith, and politics from a Christian and conservative point of view. We don't just talk on the radio, we blog too. Check us out at caffeinatedthoughts.com. Now grab a cup of coffee and join us. This is Caffeinated Thoughts Radio. And welcome back to Caffeinated Thoughts Radio. Caffeinated Thoughts Radio is sponsored in part by American Principles Project a conservative political think tank in Washington, D.C. American Principles Project believes that human dignity should be at the heart of public policy. They work in all 50 states and in Washington, D.C. to promote life, religious freedom, local control over education, authentic economic progress for working Americans, and a return to constitutional principles such as federalism. Want to help American Principles Project? Visit their website today, AmericanPrinciplesProject.org. That's AmericanPrinciples, P-L-E-S, Project.org. Sign up for email updates, send a small donation their way, help them out. They're a great group. And full disclosure, I've worked with them since 2010. So uh, so I can vouch they're an awesome group. 
or maybe not. Let me work for them. Uh, maybe, but, yeah, no, no, they are. They do great work. And now it's time for our news segment, otherwise affectionately, affectionately known as News You, you can, can Use. All right, first up from Caffeinated Thoughts. Hmm. Who are those guys anyway? Yeah, it's that Vanderhart dude. Yeah. Let's see here. Defense Secretary James Mattis announced just hours before a July 1st deadline that he will defer implementation of the so-called transgender policy until January 1st, 2018. The Obama-era policy would have allowed incoming service members identifying as transgender to enlist if they have been stable in their gender identity for 18 months. Such a policy is wide-reaching, applying to the use of barracks, bathrooms, showers, and coerced training of military and civilian personnel. The Obama policy directly undermines unit readiness as well as religious and conscientious objections. Well, this was a nice development to see that this has been postponed. What what are your thoughts there, Shane? Is this going to come back? I hope not. I hope this is going to be postponed indefinitely. Yeah, and, like, and, like as in see you later. Yeah, uh, because the military is not a social experiment. And you think Mr. Mattis knows that from, yeah. from everything we know about I him. Think so, well, the Marines, and being a former Marine, the Marines were the ones that really um, had the most pushback against some of these things that President Obama was wanting to do. Um, they kind of drugged their feet. Of course, they can only drag their feet so much. I mean, he was commander-in-chief, uh, so... <laughs> It's, yeah, there's no really room in in the military inf- you know, structure and setup to, mm-hmm. to to avoid. You know, you voice your concern and then you're done. Yeah, pretty much. Um, well, so, perhaps perhaps as you say, we've seen the last of this. Hopefully, that'd, that'd be great. Hopefully, I mean, yeah, it's just it, it, it's common sense that this is not good uh, policy. Um, and as far as stability, I don't know what stability in your gender identity. Folks, gen- gender dysphoria is still considered uh, a psychological disorder. Um, so why why the military to be accommodating that is is beyond, beyond me. me. Yeah. yeah. Next up from the Intercept, a controversy erupted late Tuesday night after CNN published an article announcing that it had uncovered the identity of the anonymous Reddit user who created the video of President Donald Trump punching a CNN logo. Though CNN decided for now not to reveal his name, the network made clear that this discretion was predicated on the user's lengthy public apology. Apology. His promise not to repeat the behavior and his status as a private citizen. But in its article, now get this, folks, in its article, the network explicitly threatened that it could change its mind about withholding the, the user's real name if his behavior changes in the future. Yeah, this is uh, Andrew uh, Kaczynski of K-File, um, who used to write for BuzzFeed. Um, and <laughs> this this is really, you know, first of all, I, the it, it was, a, yeah, it was an immature um, meme, but I actually found it kind of, I found I it did hilarious. Too. I thought it was hilarious. And, and I'm like, I can't believe that they're getting so up in arms over this. Now, should President uh, Trump tweeted out no i i've i've you know i've talked i've talked about um president trump's 
conduct on Twitter, and we'll talk about it again later uh, in the this, show. In the show. <clears throat> um, but the meme itself, you know, just for, uh, I thought it was hilarious. And this backfired totally because CNN is committing suicide on a daily basis. They're, they're, they really they're just are. stupid. They're, it's just completely stupid because, what, you're going to take on the entire internet? Because now, now they're like oh, man. all sorts of memes. Oh, man. I mean, it's hilarious. It's like everybody who can Photoshop. It's everywhere. <laughs> it's everywhere. And it's like, how dumb can you be? The best thing they could have done was just ignore it. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, anyway. All right, next up, this is from cnsnews.com. Both the Congressional Budget Office and the White House Office of Management and Budget project that the federal spending will top four trillion dollars for the first time in fiscal 2017 which began on october 1st 2016 and will end on september 30th first time four trillion dollar federal spending there's no stopping this crazy train i tell you in its update to the to the budget and economic outlook published last week cbo projected that total federal spending in fiscal 2017 will hit four trillion i think that's four trillion Eight billion dollars. That is up from the approximately three point eight trillion that CBO and OMB say the federal government spent hmm. spent in twenty sixteen. And this is with the Republican president and Republican. Well, that that's what I find Congress. interesting about this is everybody was whining about how uh, how ruthless uh, Trump was being about the budget. <laughs> it, it, look, I yeah. mean this this is. This is beautiful, isn't it? Only in Washington can you have people up in arms about cuts. Well, and they, you see an increase like this. Well, it's like it's not truly cutting spend. I mean, oh yeah, it's it's a reduction it's in the crazy. rate of, of growth. I mean, yeah, he cut in some areas, uh, but then they increased in others. So, got a couple minutes left here. All right, you think that's stupid? We're going to end with something even more stupid. We're going to end the news segment today with Ron's favorite feature. We are about to share a story that is truly unbelievable, yet you know it must be true because... You can't make this stuff up! All right, this story was submitted by Lynn Erickson. That's Lynn Erickson. She gets the blame for this. This is from Fox News. An Arizona man said he is the first person in the state to take a driver's license photo while wearing a colander on his head. (laughs) Okay. The man said he finally won the right to wear the colander in the photo and said as a pastafarian, that's Mm. pastafarian, it is his religious right to wear it in the photo. I was almost (laughs) expecting to receive that letter and was pleasantly surprised when the license actually did arrive in the mail, said Sean Corbett, who tried several M- MVD, excuse me, MVD locations to get the photo approved and succeeded in his last attempt. He said the pasta strainer is a symbol of his religion, the church of the flying spaghetti monster. <clears throat> the Pastafarians believe the earth was created by an unseen flying ball of spaghetti and the world was created in four days. <laughs> sure it was. I... <laughs> okay. <laughs> the whole premise behind Pastafarianism is that you're just supposed to enjoy life and do whatever you really need to do while being slightly, slightly intoxicated. intoxicated. <laughs> I think you got to be intoxicated to believe this. 
Or a colander on your head. Yeah. Yeah. Arizona DOT officials said Wednesday night their facial recognition software should have caught the photo. (laughs) And now they will pull the the driver's license. But Corbett had hopes that his driver's license would have been a huge step for all Pastafarians. I want to know the state. Is it oh. a metal colander or a plastic colander? That's what I'd like to know. Well, I don't know. I, mean, I wonder how many pastafarians there are in Arizona. <laughs> Five. Oh, maybe six. Maybe six. You never know. Oh, dear. <laughs> All right. Send your you-can't-make-this-stuff-up ideas to story at caffeinatedthoughts.com. We'll give you the credit or the blame if we use your suggestion on the show. <laughs> Stay tuned, everybody. Have you ever noticed that the person who committed to meeting you halfway is a real bad judge of distance? That gap can cause some serious conflict. I'm Scott Owen with Crosswalk Ministries of Central Iowa, and it's time to pause for peace. If you're in that 50-50 relationship that feels more like 50-20, why not consider changing up the goal? If you're in a conflict, then you really have 100% of a conflict, regardless of who caused the most and who has tried the hardest. And chances are the other party thinks that you're a poor judgment of distance too. Jesus said, if your brother offends you, go to him. But he also said, if you realize you offended your brother, you go. No one should be drawing a line in the sand and waiting for the other to cross over. Rather than a 50-50 approach, why not be committed 100% to resolving the conflict? If you're stuck at the 50, 60, or even 80% level, give us a call at 515-635-5465 or check us out online at crosswalkcounseling.org. Got the big house going here. The big house. Hey, home stretch, everybody. You know, we appreciate all of you listening. Please don't forget to check us out at caffeinatedthoughts.com. Don't forget to like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, sign up for our email updates. You know, just be our friend. Brian needs friends. <laughs> just Brian, huh? Just Brian. I got plenty. Okay. I don't want any friends. And on that note... And now, due to the incredible sheer volume of material we have available because the leader of the free world loves Twitter, today we're once again ending the show with the top Trump Tweet of the Week. Brought to you by Myers & Associates, serving the Midwest with industrial maintenance products and services. Call them at 515-795-3676. Myers & Associates, keeping your operations running. And without further ado, drum roll, Ron, please. That's appropriate, actually. (laughs) (laughs) Ladies and gentlemen, the top Trump tweet of the week! Listen to him more. Quiet down. All right, yeah. Yeah, run him out, run him out of the studio. All right, this one, uh, our, our beloved president was busy at uh, 3 p.m. on July 1st. He started cranking out his tweets. I'm not going to 
not going to read them all, but uh, we'll, we'll do a few of them here. And this is in the afternoon. Yeah. Go figure. The fake and fraudulent news media, <laughs> big capital letters, the fake and fraudulent news media is working hard to convince Republicans and others, I should not use social media, but remember, I won. <laughs> yes, you did, Mr. President. Can you taken. Could you please act like it? <laughs> that, was a three, that was a 302. Six minutes later, he tweeted this. I am thinking about changing the name hashtag fake news CNN to hashtag fraud news CNN exclamation point. I decree the Twitter hashtag shall be. <laughs> and then at 3.41 p.m. he tweeted this. My use of social media is not presidential. It's modern day presidential. Make America great again. Mm. <laughs> I think we can safely assume he's not going away on Twitter. <laughs> no, no. He, he, he has heard, I'm glad he recognized it's, it's not presidential. He has heard a lot of complaints. He's heard criticism. He's heard his friends tell him stop. I think we can conclude he's not he going to stop. stop. And, and, and my thing, it's not so much the using to... Somebody said, oh... oh you know, so so and so was criticized when they went on TV. It's like I am not criticizing the use of the medium. Actually, I think there's a lot. I think it's kind of cool when po- uh, your elected officials actively use social media and respond um, because it's a way you can actually communicate that with them. Um, <laughs> yeah, but the, but, the, but the, you don't have to act like a juvenile <laughs> when you use it. Yep, that's that's all I'm saying. Well, you know, I think Mr. Trump realizes that most people on Twitter are acting like juveniles, and he figures he should, too. (laughs) Okay, finally, on July 2nd at 6.21 a.m., there was this. Hashtag Fraud News CNN. Hashtag FNN. And this was accompanied by a now infamous video of the president beating up a CNN logo at a pro wrestling match. Yeah. Which Shane and I mentioned earlier, we actually thought it was kind of funny. Right. And that but was there actually, was a firestorm that, that was came from out of that. way back when he was uh, he, he did something for WWE. Yep. Um, but yeah. If you hilarious. haven't seen it, go look it there's up. A it's new a meme. Treat. There's a new meme now with he's in a hockey. Here and slamming CNN logo up against the glass. Hilarious. Hey, this is Caffeinate Thoughts Radio. Thanks for listening, everybody. We'll see you next week. Take care, everybody.